Genesis chapter 38. Um, I am going to read the whole chapter, uh, so be aware of that. So if you're, if you're willing and able to stand uh, as we read God's Word together, let me ask that you do that now. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the seed on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take Back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where's the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then, Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, 
and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, perhaps uh, never more than now, uh, we need Your hand at work uh, that we might understand, know, trust, believe this Your very Word for our good and for Your glory. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe some of you are familiar with uh, Justice Potter Stewart. Potter Stewart was a U.S. Supreme Court justice in the um, 60s. And during a, um, in writing an opinion on a pornography case, uh, he famously wrote, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Some of you are thinking, hey, Justice Stewart, I think we found some right here in chapter 38 of Genesis. I think we just found some in the Bible. Uh, There are plenty of you, perhaps you're visiting with us and and you're not used to our pattern. You're thinking to yourself, uh, are you really preaching this chapter? Um, Some of you are familiar with our practice and you're thinking, okay, you could have made an exception you, know, you preach chapter by chapter, context by context, through books. That's what you've been doing for the last several years. Just once. This would have been a good place to make an exception. In fact, even commentators, writing commentaries on Genesis suggest, just skip it. Just don't even bother with this passage. But this chapter actually is placed perfectly. The story is necessary for our good for our understanding of God's word, and we remember that um, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is for our uh, training, uh, that we might become complete, lacking in nothing. And it it serves a great purpose right here. Joseph was just introduced in the last chapter, and he's going to be in I think every chapter from here on out. And not in this, it seems odd in some ways. If your favorite TV show ended the series with this cliffhanger and then came back and started the next year's series with something completely different and made no reference whatsoever to that cliffhanger, you would think, wow, that was good. That's impressive writing. You would think, oh, they've, they've, look, look what they've done. They introduced this idea at the end of last season, and now they've ignored it in the first episode of the next. You would actually praise TV show writers for doing that. That's what the inspired writer Moses has done. He's created greater suspense. Because as you recall, Joseph was sold into slavery... And we get this one-off sentence at the very end of chapter 37 that now he's actually 
Um, in the home of Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's army, scene ends, cut to Judah and Tamar, and you're thinking, wait, 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 don't lose Joseph. What happened to Joseph? It also creates, as we'll see, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks, quite the contrast between uh, Joseph and his brother Judah. First in this passage, I want you to count if you can. I'm not sure you can. I tried and I sort of lost track. And even reading this morning, I thought, you know what? There's one I didn't even mention. Count all the disobediences of Judah and his, and his people. We'll include Jacob and we'll include his sons. But just think of all the ways in which Judah and, and his people are disobedient in this chapter. Everyone knew. Jacob knew. Judah knew. Everyone knew. You don't marry Canaanites. Abraham had instructed his servant to go back to his people and find a wife for Isaac. And he made him swear, swear to me that whatever you do, you won't let Isaac marry a Canaanite. Don't let him choose a woman from among these nearby foreigners. Go find a wife from among our people. You don't marry Canaanites. Everyone knew this. Jacob knew this. Jacob had experienced this. You remember his parents said, look, you've got to go back to his mom's people, to Rebecca's people, and find from there a wife. So that, she, so that he wouldn't marry a Canaanite. He wouldn't marry a local girl, but he'd go and find one from among their people. Jacob should have made sure that his children married the, from the right clan, that they weren't marrying Canaanite women. And yet Jacob and Judah combine to disobey that command right here in this chapter. Jacob, it appears, you remember at the end of the chapter, he thinks Joseph, at the end of the last chapter, he thinks Joseph is dead. He's seen Joseph's coat covered in blood. He couldn't do a DNA test. He couldn't call up CSI and, you know, CSI, Hebrew edition or whatever. Call them up and do, do a test. Do the, he, couldn't, he couldn't do any of that. He, he thinks Joseph is dead. And, and his kids tried to console him. And do you remember what he said? I'm going to the grave in mourning. Apparently, he was so committed to mourning Joseph's death that he quit parenting the rest of his children. Because Judah is on his own. Judah leaves home. He left his brothers. And, and, and Jacob did nothing to, to train Judah, to train his children. No, no, no. You don't marry Canaanites. Let me send you. These are the people you should marry from. Let me send you back to our people and, and find a wife for yourselves there. He should have instructed Judah in proper wife selection. Judah knew better. 
You remember when Shechem wanted to marry Dinah? Jacob's sons knew, they all knew that it's not right to intermarry with these Canaanites, with these foreigners, with these outsiders. Judah knew not to marry a Canaanite. And yet, there's disobedience number one. Maybe, maybe Judah was embarrassed. Maybe his guilt weighed heavily on his shoulders. The guilt of deceiving his father got to be too much for him. Maybe that's why he left home, verse 1. Maybe that's why he went down from his brothers. It's interesting, that's um, not just a geographical term. It is a geographical term. He does have to go downhill topographically and geographically. But he's also going downhill morally at the same time. Judah marries a Canaanite, the daughter of Shua, verse 2. And apparently, with, with apparent ease, you've got to love the way the, the um, Bible writers, the human writers, uh, inspired um, by the Holy Spirit, record a series of births that, that make it sound like you know, it just happened in an instant. Boom, Ur's born. Boom, Unan's, Onan's born. Boom, Sheila's born. There's no time lapse at all. You, you, you get the sense it was with apparent... They had no trouble conceiving children. You get the sense that it was just with, with such apparent ease that they quickly had three sons. Judah suddenly remembers the value of teaching your children how to choose a wife. Because what his father didn't do for him, he now immediately does for Ur. Verse 6. Judah picks a wife for him. Judah takes a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And her name is Tamar. The very thing Jacob didn't do for Judah, Judah sees as invaluable to do for his own sons. And yet, he presumably chooses a Canaanite. Judah's sons are wicked. Verses 7 and 8. At least the first two are wicked. The third we know very little about. The first two are wicked. The Ur was wicked. We're told simply, verse 7, that he was wicked and so the Lord put him to death. He did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord and so God slayed him. God killed him for his wickedness. God cut his life short because he is... We don't know what he did. We don't know what he was doing. We don't know what the pattern was. We have no idea. But we know it was bad enough that the Lord would end his life early because of it. Onan isn't any better. In his case, uh, we know that he's selfish. He only cares about his own pleasure. He cares nothing about the name of his brother or his brother's offspring or having a, a line descendants for his, uh, for his brother. He uses... Tamar for his own satisfaction, his own gratification. And you can hear the judges on Chopped. And for those reasons, you've been killed. That's why he's put to death. 
Now let, let me re- remind you. Uh, there's, a, there's a law in Scripture, the Leveret Law. Uh, no, that word has nothing to do with Levi. It has nothing to do with priesthood. It's, it's from Latin. It doesn't even have anything to do with Hebrew. It's from Latin. So it's, you know, don't confuse Levi and the Leveret Law. They're two completely different. There's no connection at all. The law basically is that if uh, a man marries and then dies before he and his wife have children, it's his brother's job to perform the duties of a brother-in-law. Notice that's exactly what um, Judah says to Onan. Go into your brother's wife. Perform the duty of a brother-in-law, which is levir in Latin. Onan was supposed to carry out this leveret law and raise up descendants for his brother Ur. Now, the command comes in Deuteronomy 25, but it's clearly already a practice here in Genesis 38. Onan ended up with his brother's wife because he's supposed to raise up children, a seed, descendants for his brother. That's the Leveret Law. And yet in verse 11... Judah withholds Shelah from Tamar because he's too young. Notice notice what Judah's afraid of. The expressed reason, the reason he withholds Shelah from her is because he's too young. That's what he says out loud. But you get a glimpse of what's going on inside of his mind in verse 11. We're told he was afraid that Sheila would die too. He's convinced it's Tamar's fault that his sons are dying. He's, he's withholding his son because he has no intention of letting Sheila fulfill this leveret law. There's another disobedience chalked up to Judah and his people. And then verse 12, verse 18, Judah's own wife dies. And then after a period of mourning, the required duty-bound period of mourning, uh, some suggest it was a week. It wasn't terribly long. He goes up to the sheep shearing festival, and it was a, a festival. It was a celebration. It was a par- harvest and sheep shearing were were party sort of atmospheres. There would be prostitutes and partying and all sorts of things going on at the sheep shearing event. And on the way, he stops off to visit one of those prostitutes. Chalk that up to Judah's disobedience. Finally, in verse 16, we get a, a glimmer of discretion. You start thinking in verse 16, well, wait, maybe, maybe Judah, Judah does have his limits. Maybe he does have his boundaries um, in as far as he would go. Notice he draws the line, verse 16. He had no idea this was his daughter-in-law. Had he known it was his daughter-in-law, he wouldn't have 
done what he did. He wouldn't have slept with her. Because we're told later that, that once he does discover, once he does learn her identity, he's like, he, it, he, we're told he never knew her again. He never slept with her again. That, that would have never happened had he known. But he didn't seem to know. He's convinced that Tamar is the reason for Ur and Onan's deaths. He clearly was blind to their wickedness. Unaware or decided to choose, maybe they're not so bad. They're my kids. They can't possibly be that bad. It must be Tamar's fault that they are dead. I've lost count. Some of you are counting. Surely there's somebody here who's going to come up to me afterwards and go, it was eight. It was four. I don't know. Count the disobediences of of Judah and his people, his father, his sons. There's this, this whole litany of them here in Genesis 38. We also see the deception committed by Tamar. Tamar gets word that um, that Judah is is passing by, that he's on his way to the sheep shearing festival. She had it had been long enough; to, enough time had passed by. Uh, she saw that Sheila was grown up, verse seventeen, and she wasn't going to be given to him in marriage. She could tell that. Clearly, Judah is um, not going to fulfill his promise. He's clearly not going to do what he said he would do. What he told her was, Sheila's too young. You go home, live as a widow. When he's old enough, I'll come get you and, and let you marry him. He's old enough. And clearly, Judah is not going to fulfill his promises. So she decided to take matters into her own hands. Now remember, as a widow, she's bound by this leveret law. As long as Sheila lives, she cannot remarry. Only until Sheila either performs the duty of the brother-in-law or he dies, only then is she then free. She's been at home with her, with her dad, with her parents, dressed in her widow's garb, living as a widow, waiting for Judah to send Sheila. So she took off her widow's clothes and put on her prostitute clothes. Covered herself with a veil to hide her identity. And then she waited at the crossroads just outside of town where Judah would have to walk right by on his way up to Timnah for the sheep shearing event. Judah, we know, is not a man of his word. So when he said, to steal language from Popeye, when he said, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today, She said, I don't believe you. I don't trust you. How do I know that you really will send this goat to pay me for services rendered? And so he leaves. She said, leave your signet, the cord, 
and the staff. The signet wasn't a ring. It was a sort of a cylindrical shape worn on a cord around his neck. The staff would have been carved up by the handle and would clearly have been Judas, would clearly have been connected with him, easily identifiable as Judas. In the words of one commentator, he left his driver's license and his credit card with Tamar. It would have been easy. It's a picture ID and further identification that says, oh yeah, that's Judah. We know exactly to whom this signet and this staff belong. But so well did she pull off her deception, she didn't just fool Judah. She fooled the entire town. Nobody saw her. There was no one to say, oh yeah, I happened to see that prostitute you're talking about. Because when Judah finally does send payment, be careful. Be careful. Don't give Judah too much credit. If a, if a wealthy business executive or a U.S. congressman leaves his driver's license at credit and his credit card at the brothel in the town, the next town over, you better believe he's going to send whatever payment he promised down to that brothel and recover those things as quickly as he can. Don't give Judah too much credit for finally following through with his word. He wants his stuff back. He wants his identification back. But so well did she do her job, that so well did she deceive Judah, that when Hira went with the goat and wandered around town and went to the place she was supposed to be and couldn't find her and started asking around, hey, what happened to that cult prostitute that used to stay out there by this? They're like, we don't know anybody like that. There's... Nobody caught a glimpse of her. Nobody was able to go, well, there was this one time, like, you know, maybe three months ago. There was, I did see a girl out there a few months ago. Like, there was nobody that could do that at all. She deceived everyone. She fooled everybody. The disobedience of Judah and his people, the deception by Tamar. And then we have the discovery of Judah. Notice verse 24. Three months later, Judah is told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. And moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. Now, the only reason anyone says she's immoral is because she's pregnant. There's no record of it. There's no one to know what she did. So they're basically going, huh, Tamar's pregnant. Therefore, she was immoral. Maybe technically they're right. But hang on to that judgment for just a few minutes too. The assumption was she's not married. Sheila hasn't been sent to her. And therefore she has been immoral. Notice Judah's reaction in verse 24. And we could add this to the list from a few minutes ago. Self-righteous, double-standard, that sort of anger that came out of him. 
Think about it for a second. He demanded that she wait who knows how long before she could remarry and have children. He, however, waited a whole week after his wife's death. He fulfilled his duty-bound requirement to after he was comforted, we were told in verse 12. After he fulfilled the required time of mourning, he visited a prostitute. He waited a whole week. The self-control of the man. We should admire him for that. I mean, a whole week? And the anger. Tamar is pregnant. Bring her out, burn her. I mean, never mind that he has been the same kind of immoral. But because there's no evidence, there's no one calling for his burning. The anger, the ire that comes out of him in that moment. You see the double standard? You see how often we are quick to judge people, to serve as, as jury and executioner for people who violate the same standards we aren't even willing to keep? He's guilty of the exact same immorality. And he, without a discussion, without a breath, without talking to anybody, without getting any facts at all, passes out judgment, burn her. Execute her. Kill her. Bring her out and kill her now, right here in front of everyone. And it appears that's exactly what happened. Because in verse 25, as she was being brought out, he said, bring her out, burn her. As she was being brought, she's on the way to the stake. And she goes, oh, by the way, would you send these to Judah? This signet and this cord and this staff. And just tell him that the person that owns these things, if you could just identify the owner of these. This, this is the father of the child that I'm carrying. There's a, there's a scene in um, Aladdin, the Disney movie Aladdin. One of my favorite Disney movies. I've said that before. Um, but there's this whole scene, and it's maybe a little long to remind. You'll remember it if you know it. If you don't, it's a little long to explain. But Aladdin ends up in this cave, and the cave collapses over him. Okay, And he discovers a genie uh, lamp. And he rubs it and out comes this genie. And after this, genie sings this great song about all the cool stuff he can do. Uh, go home and listen to it um, later on. Uh, but after he sings this song about all the cool stuff he can do, um, Aladdin looks at his pet monkey, Abu, and goes, I don't know, Abu. I bet he can't even get us out of this cave. And then, poof, in an instant, genie's like, hold on. Boom, boom, out, the, out of the cave they go. And so then when Aladdin says, well, now, about my three wishes, and Genie goes, oh, no, no, you've only got two wishes. You... Genie said, I didn't actually say I wished to be out of the cave. I just simply said, I bet you couldn't do it. And, Aladdin, and the Genie turns into a sheep. And he says, my, don't I feel sheepish. <laughs> I think Judah turned into a sheep. I mean, hey, uh, Judah... The owner of this cord and signet and this staff, this is the father of 
Tamar's child. Uh, I mean, you can almost feel his sheepish embarrassment. I mean, you can almost sense that for him. And notice his one response, verse 26. She is more righteous than I. I didn't give her my son, Sheila. And he didn't know her again. You know, there's an encouragement there for us. People change. Don't miss that. People change. Judah just became a different person. Judah just changed. All that disobedience that we could pile right on top of his head, he just acknowledged. She's more righteous than I. I failed to do what I was supposed to do. Publicly confessed his sin. Publicly acknowledged his disobedience. Publicly acknowledged his failures. Judah is being sanctified. You just got a glimpse of repentance and sanctification going on in Judah's life. He publicly acknowledged his sin. Acknowledged it before because his sin is public now. So it's public confession, public repentance. And he's being sanctified by God's grace. You and I have that same hope. You and I have that same promise. Yes, it might be painful. It could be terribly embarrassing. But it's still for our good and for the honor and glory of Christ. We change. People change. We're being sanctified. You're not the same person you were. But by God's grace, you're also not the person you're going to be. That's our hope. And we get a glimpse of that even in Judah. All the disobedience. Count them. And with that one repentance, with one confession, with one acknowledgement of sin and disobedience, Judah is now different. But then there's more. Because we finally see the delivery of the children. Twins apparently run in the family. Um, Tamar has twins. Uh, Zara, go figure. I mean, some of you, I'm sure, some of you ladies are wincing at every thought of this. Zara puts a hand out, gets the cord. Hey, that's the oldest firstborn. As the arm, Perez apparently pulls him back and then Perez comes out instead. And they they use the word breach. I mean, this is a breach. What have you done? Sort of a, a picture of not just his birth, but also breaching the birth order. He, he sort of usurped his brother and it also seems to run in the family. There's no logical or biological explanation necessarily, but we do have a theological one. Perez just traded places with Zara. Perez is the chosen seed. 
Just as Jacob was technically the younger twin by, you know, grabbing onto an arm, an arm's length. So, I mean, he's holding on to his brother's heel. So he's technically younger because Esau came out first, but they came out kind of in unison together because he's holding on to... Well, Paris traded places with Zerah in utero, apparently. Perez is the chosen seed. Perez is the one through whom the, the line of King David would come. The line through whom Jesus would come. Tamar, Perez, actually show up in Matthew 1 in Jesus' genealogy. Do, do you see the picture? God has used a foreign woman to deceive disobedient Judah in order to bring about the human ancestry of Jesus. The heroine, the hero of the story, is a heroine, is Tamar, a foreign woman. Deliverance comes from an unlikely place. That's going to be true of Jesus, right? Whose own mother has her own sketchy story about her pregnancy with Jesus. If you're wondering to yourself, I don't know that God would want me in His family. I mean, I've done some pretty bad stuff. I'm not sure. I'm just not sure God wants me in His family. Well, read this chapter. Because they're in His family. This is Jesus' human ancestry. This is Jesus' human family line. Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute. Rahab, who lived as one. Judah, who could wait a whole week. And, and was disobedient all along the way. We get this great glimpse, this great picture. There are some rather unsavory types in the family of God. Get in line. I mean, you, you think I've got to clean myself up. I've got to get better. I've got to get to a certain... But he calls the sick. And heals them as the physician. He calls the broken and fixes them. He calls the sinner and sanctifies them and ultimately one day glorifies. He doesn't call the well and the whole and the all clean and put together. That's His work. That's His grace at work in our lives. And just look at all the places in this chapter all along the way that tell us that God was in charge all along. God at work all of Life may not look like it. But God's always working. He's always at work bringing about His intentions for you, for me, for His people, and for His plan. And He's doing so not by our goodness, but by His grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your grace and mercy shown to us in Christ.
Not because of our worth, not because of our merit, not because of our goodness. We have none of those things. We thank You for the hope and promise that You are at work taking broken, sinful, sick, wicked, evil, selfish people. And You're changing us. You don't say to us, change and then come to Me. You say to us, come to Me and I'll change you. So Lord Jesus, we pray that You would be about the work of sanctifying us all by Your grace. Through Christ we pray. Amen.